Hello everyone, Titus O'Reilly here. As you may know by now, we have a membership program, Bazaar Plus, for people that love Sports Bazaar. As a member, you'll get all the normal episodes, of course. You'll get behind-the-scenes access. You'll get a weekly bonus podcast. You'll get a fortnightly newsletter, access to members-only chat room, the ability to vote on future episodes, and, of course, early access to any live shows we do. And it's very easy to join. Just go to the link in the show notes for this podcast or go to bizarreplus.com. That's Bizarre Plus, our membership program. We'd love to have you on board. It's Sports Bizarre. I'm going to kick back and enjoy this. Some of these stories, you would say, that cannot be true. The hunt for the weirdest. It's a real rollercoaster ride, this one, isn't it? <laughs> it makes Game of Thrones look like a sitcom. <laughs> Strangest. Hang on. He's on another level. What are you doing? <laughs> a lot of our stories that start with someone <laughs> fleeing moneylenders. Most unbelievable. This is a car crash. Stories to ever occur. We'll stop this right now. <laughs> it's just carnage. That is the densest bit of mayhem. So many <laughs> subplots in this story. In the world of sport. I think we're learning that embarrassment is not something. Sports Bizarre. A naked fan ran onto the field and slid into second base. <laughs> no, I don't drink water. I cannot stand drinking water. I am the president of everybody. I am the president of the whole FIFA. <laughs> Opened his mouth and a sparrow flew out. It's time for the leaders of the hunt. It's really simple. Get there early, get the good back. It's <laughs> Titus O'Reilly and Mick Malloy. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to the latest edition of Sports Bazaar with myself, Mick Malloy, and, of course, as always, doing the mighty work, the <laughs> background, the research, the heavy lifting, Titus O'Reilly. How are you, Titus? I'm very well. All right. You look pretty happy with yourself. What are you bringing to the well, table? Well, I'm excited about this one because this is a, a true odyssey. This is going to so go... we're going on an adventure. We're going on an adventure. A road trip. <laughs> it's going to take us... Interesting places. All right. And this is a person who has had an enormous effect on sport right up to this day, but most people would never have heard of him. Okay, sure. So the guy's name is George Lewis Rickard. His nickname becomes Tex. So he's known as Tex Rickard for most of his life. All right. So not a sportsman? He's not a sportsman. He is born on January 2nd, 1870 in Kansas City, Missouri. So we're right in the Wild West, the tail end of the Wild West. His family had been very close to Abraham Lincoln in the day before he was born, (laughs) so going back a bit. But by the time he's born, he's got a father, Robert, and a mother, Lou, and he's got two brothers, Bob Jr. and Merle. Merle's a great American name. It is. Three sisters, Minnie, Annie, Catherine, and Alice. So he spent his youth, they moved when they were four to Sherman, Texas. So he's okay. a he's southern in, lad. A southern lad. He's in Texas. And this is true Wild West, right? He's literally amongst all the cowboys yeah. and uh, sure. all the shootouts and all that sort of stuff. You got me intrigued. I'm trying to think of what the sports are. This is the thing. This is going to have more twists <laughs> all right. than you can imagine. And I'm trying more, to get ahead of you. And it'll be more than one sport, old lad. Right. Okay. His dad was, he worked in the mills and he worked in all sorts of things, but. Honest, hardworking folk. Very honest, hard. But his wife, uh, Texas future wife, once said of his dad, Robert Woods Rickard tried hard, but he was one of those individuals with a peculiar genius for not making money. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's, That's uh, pretty solid criticism yeah. from the daughter-in-law. So in 1881, <laughs> his father passes away from consumption, which is Thank tuberculosis, you. but they called it consumption right. back then. Um, now, he's about 11 when this happens. 
His mother moves them to Henrietta, Texas, and he begins at 11. They're completely poor at this point. Yes. He becomes a cowboy at 11. Is that a career choice? That's, well, he's, he's literally riding around with all the cowboys, doing big cattle drives, carrying a gun. He's 11. I love it. So he's growing up a pretty tough. Yeah, yeah. So he's on board early. He's part of the last major cattle drives. You know, this is where they take, you know, thousands of head of cattle. I love that stuff. Like right across. A muster. Yeah, muster right across like whole states, you know, in America back then, you know, and fighting off. They go for like like six months or something. Yeah, yeah. And he's 11 doing this. (laughs) Right? He's got a gun. He said that he really learned to handle tough, hard men. Yeah, sure. And he's not really around the family from this point on. He's supporting them, but he is okay. like as tough as they come. Yeah. And he's doing the last ones because then the trains all come. and Trains they, ruined everything. They ruin everything. They ruin everything. By the age of 23, he's been a cowboy for, you know, over a decade now, and he is elected the marshal of Henrietta, Texas. He's the sheriff <laughs> of Henrietta, and he is known as being like a very tolerant and honest lawman one of the good guys. One of the good guys, right? He becomes very good as a poker player as well. Which he learned from the age of 11. Like, yeah. so Sounded a bit like Jimmy White, this guy. Yeah. So by the age of 23, he's lived a whole life on the range. Yep. Guns, outlaws, Fantastic. fighting wolves, you know, you name it. He's, <laughs> he's as tough as nails. So he's 23. And that, as sheriff, he becomes known as Tex. That's where he picks that's up the nickname. Tex. Not the most imaginative nickname. No, but, you know, there's some great nicknames coming up in this story that you are going to really like. (laughs) He then falls in love with the daughter of Henrietta's physician, Dr. Samuel Ginn. She's 19, he's 23. Leona Viola is her name. And her dad, who's a doctor, he says, can I marry your daughter? I intend to. And the doctor says, no. No text. And the reason why is he said she's in terrible health. I don't think she's going to have long. So she was thinking of him. Marry. Yeah, so the dad's thinking of him saying, look. But they still, he says, no, I want to go ahead and he marries her anyway. And they're very happy. Within a few uh, months she announces she's pregnant, but they find out she's also got incurable tuberculosis. So This is not your cheeriest story so far. You're not off to a fly. (laughs) People are dying of consumption. There's a lot. In this era, you can't get through any stories. There's going to be highs and lows all the way through. I said it was an odyssey. A son's born Curtis in 1895, and then she dies just a month afterwards, and she'd only just turned 20. And then two months after the mum's dead, Curtis (laughs) dies as well. So it's 1895. He is suddenly lost his wife and child, and he thinks, I've got to get out of here. Uh, He needs to go on another muster. He does more than that. He decides in November of 1895, he and a friend, Will Slack, they board a boat and decide we're heading to Alaska. And this from is Texas. From Texas. We're going to oh, Alaska. No, they're getting out of the joint. And you gotta remember, it's not like you jump on a plane, right? No, you've got to get there. And they go there because they hear that there could be gold up there. So this is all the gold rushes. So he decides, I'm going to head up and go <laughs> to Alaska. So he goes up and he's heading up to Alaska and Canada, you know, the Yukon area. The, sure. the, it's not really that defined at this point who yeah. owns what. To get there, you have to go over the Chilkoot Pass, which is literally like a 3,535-foot mountain. It's a true summit. You have to climb over the mountain. Why is he doing this? Because he hears there's gold there. And I think he's a bit driven like, I just want to get away from 
Texas. Try to stay busy. I want to be busy. They were having to carry all their food and their packs. Like he's literally like exploring. At one point they arrive at Lake Bennett and then to get to where they're going, they then have to wait until the river thaws. And then they have to build their own boat. He hasn't thought this through. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like one of those reality shows. Exactly, know? right? He has to build their own boat. Then they have to travel through rapids and float about 550 miles to their destination. When Will Slacky's friend arrives at the boat building stage, he became delirious, sold all his provisions to other people and then decided to just go home. So he's like, he had enough. He had enough. Wait it, check, please. So then Rickett has to do the rest of it himself. He what does make the boat out of? Just they have to get, cut down trees and everything. Like this is true like frontier. Like a boat or a canoe? Just a canoe, a hollow out a log. Well, I imagine they do something like that. But this is like a true like frontiers man sort right. of stuff. He says that this was the most coldest and most difficult task of his entire life when doing it and he said it made him very tough. But along the way he found a brotherhood of like men he really liked and this is where the nicknames come in. So here are some of the men he met. Sure. Swiftwater Bill. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I like that. All right, try this one. Deep Hole Johnson. (laughs) It could be a number of things. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you don't want to ask Deephold Johnson how he got his name. No, you don't. Now, you certainly don't want to ask this guy how he got his name. Ham Grease Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he'd be a good match for Deephold Johnson. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. can I put this forward as something that, you know, you might even want to consider taking on? The Chills and Fever Kid. Wow. <laughs> That's another one. And there'll be a background story to all those names. Well, also, and a lot of them apparently are like – on the run for things, right? This is like the true, like it's up in Canada's Yukon and Alaska. It's more than the Wild yeah, West yeah. because it's even, it's so hard to get there, yeah, right? These, these if you're up there, you're running from you're something. You're running from something. Can I say those nicknames, it's like the American Indian equivalent of their names, which kind of describes something. something about, yeah, 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 that's right. And <laughs> when you get ham grease, Jimmy, we what did someone game. see you do? <laughs> I was playing that game with my friends. You know, if you were uh, oh yeah, the name in the name, and my name was Hogs' Joint. (laughs) (laughs) So that's the name given to me. That's my tribal name, (laughs) Hogs' Joint. He finally arrives at what's called Circle City. Now these are all kind of small towns. This is like when you think about it, it's basically just a bunch of saloons and stuff like that. But it's at the time, this is considered the Paris of Alaska. This is like considered high-end yes. in Alaska because um, this is in 1896 and it's just before the big rush comes to this area of gold rush. I'm imagining a kind of Deadwood-style Very Deadwood. Town. Think yeah. Deadwood. And right. there's a few towns he goes to in this that are just pure like okay. Deadwood. He's got there before the big rush gets there of people looking for gold because this is all the Klondike gold strike yep. area. So it's got a population of 1,200. It's got two theatres, eight dance halls and 28 saloons. <laughs> I was going to say, a lot of swinging doors, I reckon, yeah. in this town. Yeah. Um, and Three pianolas. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a place, Sam Bonifield's Bank Saloon and Gambling House, which was one of the big ones, and it was the largest saloon. And Rickard goes and says, can I deal cards? And then later on he actually means enough money to set up a gambling shack of his own, but he loses it on a card game. Idiot. <laughs> So he's, word comes through, though, that there's a 
gold strike up Ribbo and he takes off. So the town goes from having all like, you know, 28 saloons to no one's there anymore. Because It doesn't keep, take much to get people motivated, does it? This is what happens I'll whiff in the some gold, gold up the road and yeah. you're on. Gold rushes just mean like one town can be huge overnight and then suddenly no one's there. It's a ghost town. And this keeps happening at this time. So he arrives in a place called Dawson City and he buys a half interest in three below Bonanza. These are mining rights to land. Right. So he's speculating. Now, a lot of people make a fortune. You never mine. You just buy a plot of land yes. and then sell it to the next guy for a profit. So sublet it. On. Or, or sell it completely but for a profit. So right. he keeps speculating. He makes a bit of money there. He then opens with a new partner called Harry Ash. He opens a new saloon called the Northern Saloon. And the Northern Saloon becomes something he'll move from town to town and buy a place but keep calling it, keep the, calling Northern it the Northern Saloon. So the there's a lot of northern saloons. It was the only one known in town, to be fair. It was the only one that wasn't <laughs> cheating. So he, he gets, as a former lawman, and he's a very straight shooter. I like his style. People come again. After one night of gambling, though, Rickard and Ash lose the northern. <laughs> is, is he gambling? Where's he gambling? He's gambling at other places, playing poker, and they're literally putting the hotel on a round of cards. Good on him. It says, without breathing a word of his loss, Rickard doesn't go damn or anything. He just loses it, looks yeah. at the rest of the table and goes, gentlemen, gets up, walks out of the saloon, walks down the road, goes to Swiftwater Bill's Monte Carlo saloon and says, can I get a job here? He goes, sure. Yeah. He picks He's himself up. He, he loses big off. and he wins big. At the Monte Carlo, he meets a woman called Blanche Lamont. Okay. She, <laughs> she sounds exotic. She is exotic. She's 19. She left San Francisco and has gone all the way to Alaska. Okay. A lot of women living in Alaska, they tend to be on the most like sex workers, the yeah, majority of them, yeah, entertainers, either, singers. Vaudevillian. Yeah, a lot of that. Vaudeville, all that sort of yeah. stuff. So there's a variety of them. A lot of the upstairs girls. Yeah, and they're but they're interesting women because to do that in this time, right. you have to it's kind of tough. be tough and like, you know. And she was apparently pursued by everyone. But anyway, Rickard and her hook up but one night Blanche was with Rickard and this is in 1898 and he notices this dark-haired actress and singer named Marie who arrives in the town yep. as part of a theatrical group and he's like captivated by her and they start chatting and Blanche is completely She's not furious a, yeah. she says you belong to me yeah. and realizes that she's lost him so she hooks up with another lover CB Heath alias is the hobo kid <laughs> And he's a criminal on the run from the law in the United States. <laughs> hobo kid. The hobo Can I have kid. another nickname? <laughs> no, you're the hobo <laughs> kid. So she takes off to Nome, which is another town that's about to blow up, and they, they leave there. They set up a gambling house called Kids Club. Right, okay. <laughs> After the hobo kid. Rickard, who's Marie, says, I've got plans too. I'm going to Nome. So he's suddenly, God, well, I'm stuck here. Right. <laughs> I'm in Dawson City. Everyone else is... Uh, Heading to Nome. So she takes off too. So he's by himself. This is when sport enters his life. One night, there's a guy called Frank Slaven. Now, he's a former heavyweight boxer right. from Australia. Okay. He trained. Do you ever fight Young Griffo? Well, isn't it? He trained in the gym owned in Sydney, the Iron Pot, owned by Larry Foley. Yes. Happy as Larry, Larry Happy Foley, Larry. the guy that trained Young Griffo. Oh, wow. So Small knew, world. He knew Young Griffo, right? Young yeah. Griffo features slightly in this story. So Frank Slavin's been a heavyweight boxer, but he's also a bit of an adventurer. He's chasing yeah. gold rushes all around the world after this. 
he's in the Klondike looking for gold and he lands in Dawson City. And one evening at the Monte Carlo, Slaven is really drunk and a local bully who's Bill Hoffman, they get in a fight, right? They've drunk yes. too much. And they get into a big brawl. And Rickard and his co-worker, Wilson Misner, they break up the fight and then they go, everyone's watching and stuff, and they go, guys, we can charge people to watch you fight. Oh, and they suddenly realise. Oh, light bulb moment. We can make some money out of this. the fights. So they put a in the back room theatre of the saloon, they set up a ring. I think it's more like a circle, like not a proper ring. Yes. Tickets are 15 bucks each and the place is full and Slaven knocks out Hoffman in the first round but is just electrifying but, in the town. And it's on. Everyone goes, this is yep. fantastic. They do another fight with Slaven and a guy called Joe Boyle and he's um, a Canadian guy. And they hype it up and they make out these two actually get along like a house on fire, but they tell the whole town these oh, two are blood enemies and they hate each other. Yeah. And they say it's more like the WWF, the World Wrestling Federation, than it is boxing. Like oh, Rickard no. starts to realize, oh, if I play this up that they hate each other, people are all going to like come and they yeah. so they make a bit of money. Joe Boyle is the one that fights in that. He goes on to become one of the richest of the Klondike Kings, which are the people that make huge amounts of okay. money. So all these characters are just coming through Rickard's life. He's meeting all these people that kind of become important yeah. later on to him. So in 1900, he decides all the people are moving to Nome. He's already got Marie there, the yes. actress, and Blanche is there and that. And they're all going there because that's where the, the money the is. The hobo kid there? The hobo kid's there. He's running the kids club, which is a gambling joint. <laughs> I love there's a gambling joint called the Kids Club. (laughs) Yeah. Sounds like there's about to be some fights on in the back of the Kids Club. So Rico decides that I'll chase the money. He goes there and he ends up working at another northern saloon for a guy called Jim Murphy. And the singer Marie, he was working at the northern too by complete chance. So he's like, they're reunited and he marries her. So Marie and him are now married. Crikey. His second marriage, his first wife obviously died. So one evening, Rickard left the Northern and he went to the Standard, another one, expecting to find his wife at a Shakespeare play, which is an actress. This is not going to be good. Instead, Tex found her behind a door in the arms of another actor, a man, kissing, and she explains, we are practising the love scene. Oh, man. He's pretty quick to get married, I've got to say. He's, yeah, he's he gets not, what he deserves. Um, she expects Rigo to pull out his gun because he's always carrying a gun, sure. like it's full, like, Wild West, because murders up there are just, like, over stuff like, like a this. road toll. There's no police force. There's no yeah. no one cares. Rickard just, like, leaves her, like, walks out. And the next morning he discovers she's gone. She left him a letter that said, I've gone away with him. Don't try and follow us. I will not come back. You've been very good to me, but I want a career and he can give it to me. So once again, he's alone. We've all received that letter. (laughs) But while he's in the Northern working, he starts to meet all these interesting people. So people like Rex Beach, who goes on to become a very famous writer, Jack London, who wrote The Call Call of the Wild Wild and White Fang about his journeys up around the Yukon. So Jack London's also a massive boxing journalist, so he'll become important later. He also meets White Earp the famous cowboy and gunslinger. Shut up. Yeah. So Wyatt Earp, for people that don't know, he was the one that was known at Dodge City and Deadwood and Tombstone where he was involved in the famous gunfight at the OK Corral, right? So they become great mates right to their dying days. Wyatt Earp and Rickard are great mates. 
Um, Wyatt Earp, that was in 1881, the OK Corral, and that makes him famous. He's the most famous lawman yeah. in the entire US. And this is when, like, he fought with his brother Virgil Earp and Doc Holliday. So these are all yeah. the people you see in the cowboy movies and everything, and it was a, a big shootout. He had stopped being a lawman around that time, even though he's famous for being it. Yeah. And one of the things he actually became is known as a boxing referee. Wyatt Earp was a massive boxing really? referee. And there was a time where he was once um, doing a boxing match. He got into the ring as the referee and the police captain watching on like at this big fight, the big yes. prop of professional fight, noticed he was carrying a gun. It says in the paper next day, for the first time in boxing history, it became necessary to disarm the referee. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So Wyatt Earp and him are friends. So he's meeting all these people there. He becomes great mates with everyone. He actually buys into the Northern Hotel in Nome, but eventually he decides that Nome is starting to lose its luster because too many people, bad memories. Well, yeah, and people come, and then the gold rush starts to move somewhere else. So it's it's suddenly like no stability. There's no stability. He starts getting too wild for the too, West. too wild. So We're like the Wild West, but not yeah. Totally it, well, wild. it's also just it becomes a ghost town overnight. Everyone goes up to another creek or something and yeah. finds gold somewhere else, and everyone's like, sure. "We're gone." So yeah. he starts to sense this is about to happen. He's ahead of it, and he's bought into the Northern by this time. So he sells his partnership interest, and he's given four hundred thousand dollars for it, which is rich. Jesus, because people got heaps of money, right? Gold's pouring in, and they spend it, right? On, yeah. No one's saving. No, no one's saving. I was putting away some super. No, everyone, <laughs> everyone that and everyone that gets rich are the people that service the miners, yeah. not the miners. No, that's right. You that's... know, because he's a massive gambler. On his last night in Nome, he gets the four hundred thousand dollars. Oh, don't do it! And puts it on the poker table, and for double or nothing, and walks out with eight hundred thousand dollars. No, so he's rich. Why do I feel he's going to give all this back at some stage? <laughs> Nothing he has ever he holds forever. Oh, it sort of does. It sort of goes up there. But he is a man that will take a risk. All right. So in 1898, he decides to head over to South Africa. So he's Why? leaving Alaska because he meets a guy called Jim Whitney who's got a shady background but tells him one night in a bar that there's a massive diamond claim he's got in Africa. It's a heap of money over there. No one double checks anything. A whisper in a pub yeah. is enough to make you pack your bags and change your life. Yeah. He takes off to South Africa, spends a bit of time there, but once he arrives, he finds out it's a total bogus mine. <laughs> so he goes to London, then he goes back to San Francisco. So he's been and Alaska. take about six months. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's well, yeah. not an easy trip. It's 1903 by the time. 1903, he arrives in San Francisco where he meets a woman called Edith May Haig and they're married. Right. So he's married... A third time. He's yeah, lost one it. to death. The other one does the actress. Well, I just run away with an actor. This is complete Deadwood stuff, right? <laughs> By the sort of early 1900s, in the Nevada desert, it's starting to pull people in away from the Klondike as the new gold rush area. So this is Nevada. Right. Okay. And so 100 people are setting up in a mining town called Goldfield and then the rush starts. So Goldfield goes from this tiny town to suddenly it's gone from having a – when text starts there, it's got yeah. 100 pe a few hundred. About a year later, it's got 15,000 people living there and right. money is pouring in, right? Yeah. And he is running a hotel uh, yeah. and pub 
he's just making a fortune. Fantastic. Right? Good on him. At the same time, but while this is happening, Goldfield becomes the biggest place in Nirvana. Las Vegas is at the time a Mexican village <laughs> <laughs> with barely any. Meanwhile, no Gold, idea what it can become. Meanwhile, Goldfield's got 50 saloons, four banks, and its own stock exchange. Love it. Now Goldfield has 300 people living there these days. So that's how much it's changed. So I'm just glad it's still there. Yeah. He's running the Northern Saloon and Casino. And so he's making a huge amounts of money. He's setting up all different mining properties. He's yeah. selling things. He's holding gold for people. He's acting like a bank basically, all this sort of stuff. His Northern Saloon, it's the most successful saloon in the entire West of yeah. America. It's got 14 gaming tables, 24 dealers, eight bartenders work each eight-hour shift. The doors never close. Yes. Each man just pays himself $12 from the cash register after his shift. Often Virgil Earp, White Earp's brother, is running security. All right. It's a big operation. It's a big operation. Apparently, this becomes the most legendary place for gambling where there was no limit on how much you could bet. Crazy. And sometimes it would be $10,000 on the turn of a single card. So this is that thing Unbelievable. all the time. He becomes known as really well. And at this point, they start to say, how do we put Goldfield on the map and bring more money in and bring more perspective? Really like advertise in and it. Basically uh, promote advertise it. it, promote the town. Okay. They turn to Ricard and go, what do you reckon? And he goes, well, I think a boxing match would be a good idea. Perfect. And so they, they say, okay, do you think you can get any good boxers here? And he's like, well, I'll think about it. So he puts an ad in various newspapers saying, we will put a purse of $5,000 for any boxer who wants to come fight wow. for it. That's going to get everyone's attention. Well, it, it gets a few. So a fighter called Jack Clifford, who's not that good but is okay, he quickly gets in touch and signs on. So Rickard says, great. So then he starts to use him as bait to get another boxer. Yeah. So he puts him in the paper and says, who will $5,000 to fight, fight Jack Clifford? Guy. Now there's a guy called Oscar Matthew Battling Nelson. <laughs> I'll fight him. I'll fight battling. He'd begun boxing professionally at 14. Okay. He fought several times and it ended up with the lightweight title and it was the white title because back then not a lot of boxers would crash the colour line. So he would just get $1,000 just to show up in a town and say, hi, I'm here and spar a bit, but he wouldn't even fight, right? And so he was currently travelling around Utah and he picks up a paper and he sees that you can earn $5,000 to fight Jack Clifford. So he doesn't even talk to his manager. He just telegrams Rickard and says, I'll do it. I'll take Because he just thinks, this is easy money for me. I'll belt this guy and there's $5,000, right? <laughs> Rickard then shows his genius as a promoter. And this is where we get a sense that of what he's going to become. Yeah. A promoter of sport. He telegrams back. Your proposition of five thousand guaranteed and five thousand side bet because Nelson says I'll bet you five thousand dollars off him too <laughs> is accepted, but yes. puts a but because Rickard realizes if he can get battling Nelson, <laughs> why doesn't he get someone bigger, right? Why right. is he having him fight someone that's you know Jack Clifford who's going to get? He thinks if I've got Nelson on the uh, yes. on the hook, why don't I try and line him up? And there's one fight that's eluded all promoters for years, yeah. right? And that was to have the white champion battling Nelson take on a guy called Joe Gans, who was said to be the greatest fighting machine the world ever known, sort of the official lightweight champion, but he was black. So okay. people didn't recognize him. Now, Gans had fought young Griffo already at this point three times. Yeah. So this is where 
young Griffo comes in. He had beaten young Griffo three times. Really? He's one of the only people. That was towards the end of Griffo's. No, it was, a, it was in the middle of it. Right. Gans said young Griffo was one of his toughest opponents ever and it was very close. Yeah. But you got to remember, young Griffo was drunk the entire time. <laughs> where Joe Gans was important factor. Joe Gans, and if you haven't listened to our young Griffo episode, go back yeah. and listen to that. But yes. Joe Gans was the one that sort of brought in fitness and all took this. Took it seriously. He, shadow boxing and all this. He took it very seriously and goes on to become one of the all-time greatest sure. boxers. The first ever lightweight and welterweight African-American champion in history. Yep. But no one would fight him. White fighters would avoid him. They yep. either saw themselves as too good, but really they knew he'd probably kill them. Yes. And so they avoided. But Rickard didn't care about the colour line. All through his life he just didn't give a he didn't yeah, care if you were black or white. He had no interest in that whatsoever. So he writes back to Nelson after his butt, I would prefer a meeting between yourself and Gans. We would give you 15000 for that fight. To win or just to fight? Just to fight. Wow. And considering all the other white lightweights had avoided Gans forever, Nelson thought, telegrams back, I'd do it, but only if it was for $30,000. And Rickard responds back straight away, done. Wow. All so right. suddenly he's put together the biggest fight in the, the history, history of, of America that everyone wants to see and it's in this tiny town in Nevada. <laughs> <laughs> right? So he's suddenly, he doesn't even have the money. Yeah. But he decided that this will put Goldfield on the map and I'll find the money. And so then he went to some of the people that worked in the town like Larry Sullivan was a stock seller who was made a lot of money he joins in and a guy called George Graham Rice whose real name was Jacob Simon Herzig he was one of the most famous con men in American history the reason he was called George Graham Rice is he stole the name from a cellmate <laughs> when he was in jail <laughs> right oh, he sounds like another episode do you want to know his nickname yes the jackal of wall street so well before the wolf. Well before the wolf. Yep, this is Fucking like around not, in the shallow end, the wolf. Yeah. He runs some of the biggest Jackal. con artist schemes in American history. Like full, like pretending to have fake banks, stock exchange <laughs> things, like, yeah. like absolute. I think he does one where he sets up in a town a, a telegraph station, yes. you know, and people come in and pay to do telegraphs, but the wires just went into the wall and went nowhere. <laughs> It's a great scam, right? Fantastic. So anyway, here's the jack. So he puts in the funding. He doesn't con Rickard. He's doing, like all con men, they do some legit things yeah, to make them. Yeah. So suddenly he's got the money too. He has to find Joe Gans though because Joe Gans is wandering the country trying to get a fight. He nah, wandering the country trying to get a fight because no one will fight him and he's broke. So finally Rickard tracks down Gans. is like, I'm in because it's like more money Straight than I've ever seen. So Rickard has set it up. The ever, it's huge. Every paper is running it. Like it's like they can't believe it. He also decides I need to build a stadium. So he gets another 50K from people. He just simply walks up and down the streets of Goldfield. This is Rickard asking his wealthy business friends if they wanted $5 shares in the new Goldfield Athletic Club. And they all say yes. So he builds a whole new stadium. Yeah. He hasn't and sold a ticket yet either, has he? Hasn't sold a ticket yet. He then, to promote it, remembers that in Klondike when he used to be back in the Yukon, so lending now with banks, you just put your money in, don't think sure. about too much. But in those days, they were independent small banks. How did you know they had the money, right? Like if you put your money in, your yeah. gold in there. Yeah. So what they would do to advertise these banks is in the front window, 
they would put the gold they had. So you could see physically they see physically have the gold, resources. right? And that was, so Rickard remembers this. So what he decides is he gets the $30,000 purse that they're fighting over in gold and does a photo shoot with it. And this ends up on the front cover of every newspaper in the country. <laughs> so like, and he goes, men just love to look at gold. Yeah. This makes people excited. So this means suddenly the hype is on and the tickets start selling like crazy. It's fantastic. He's going to make a huge amount. Nelson shows up in Goldfield and Nelson is a, he's a Danish guy, background. He thinks the Danish are the most, they're Vikings. He says all the good Irish fighters are people that came from the Danes that settled Ireland. <laughs> that invaded Ireland. Yeah, he's like that. Hands up in Goldfield. He starts to train. He starts charging spectators 50 cents to get a look at him. Just to watch him train. Just to watch him train. He also announced that Wednesdays would be ladies' day at his training quarters. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Ladies get him for free? Well, ladies get to come and watch him. He says, you can come watch me and it's a day where the men won't be allowed in to watch just the ladies. Oh, That's got dodginess oh, written. All over you. I'm on to you, Nelson. All over it, right? Now, this is kind of, it gives Tex an idea because women had, which is kind of interesting because women are not allowed at boxing matches at this point in time. They've never been allowed right, in America. Right, that's right. It's we covered bloke, that in, yeah. in your other Yeah, it's just a blokey thing. Boxing. Right? Yeah, in America at the time. Rickard thinks, well, why don't we let the women, if we get the women in and that, and women get into this sport, we're going to sell more tickets than ever before, yeah, right? You right. know, So he's like, so he announces women will be welcome at this event. This sends another wave of publicity <laughs> right around the country. He's, on, he's again on He's the broken the colour line. So he's set up a white and black yes. box at a fight. He's got thirty it's in it's got thirty thousand dollars worth of gold, gold. he's put in the front window. Yeah, and it's in this tiny town. And, and he's, he's now women. announced women will be coming. The local ministers are not happy, the religious ministers. But Reverend James Byers, who's the pastor of the first Presbyterian Church of Goldfield, said, I will expel any woman who attends the prize flight from my flock. Oh, pardon me, Your Majesty. The more they weigh in, the more tickets sell. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly women are flocking to come to this Fight. event, right? Yeah. Like, And Rickard is just going, this is fantastic. One of the uh, newspapers wrote, all the traditions of the sacredness of the ringside for males only will be broken on Labor Day, which is the day the fight's going to be held, when the majority of women in the camp will be in the arena to watch the fight. Right. Rickard says to the papers, Already a large number of reservations have been made by women singly and by many of the prominent men of the camp for their wives. It is estimated that 300 women will be witnesses to the contest. The club is making special preparations to properly care for all women who attend. The arena will be filled by specially sworn-in officers who will see that nothing offensive is said or done. <laughs> no one under the influence of liquor will be allowed within the gates and the officers will be instructed to eject any man who in any way transgresses the rules laid down by the club for the protection and comfort of women. So he right. basically legitimizes boxing as a sport that anyone can come to. Yes. That high, It's not going to be a rowdy. I'm a bit disappointed in the no alcohol. I was right. about to say, the minute I, I read that, I thought. I don't understand. They go hand in hand. I was at the boxing the other night. We uh, went to the boxing. We saw Tyson Fury in the crowd in the where crowd. we went. And, and I didn't think it was that rowdy though, was it? You know what I learned at the boxing? Yeah. This is my big hack. Go to the women's toilets. There's, <laughs> There's a queue no women a mile there. long for the blokes. For the blokes, if you're there, straight in, straight out. What percentage do you reckon? So this was a fight. We went to the fights in Melbourne the I other night. 95, 96% men, men, wasn't it? I think so, yeah. I'm including the ring girls. 
<laughs> there was some, some great. great a festival of broken noses is what I call it. <laughs> it's, it is just one of the great atmospheric experiences, and it wouldn't be that vastly different to what you're describing no, here. I just, reckon. I mean, yeah, I think. There's, but he starts to make it safe, like it's a true. It's, he moves boxing into being a where it was just two blokes fighting with a big crowd of blokes all drinking and gambling. He, yeah. he makes it an entertainment spectacle. It's the first time ever yeah. it's a true. I might be a little old-fashioned on this one. <laughs> <laughs> we find all the time that you would just be more happier 200 years ago. <laughs> Correct. So anyway, he posts 300 armed deputies at ringside to keep order. Wow. So everyone shows up in Goldfield. They have to park trains, carriages on the tracks for people to sleep in. So the population just explodes. explodes. Every, Can they handle all the numbers? Can yeah, they, they manage to. People, they, they make all these arrangements for accommodation and all that. But like literally it's like people from New York, San Francisco, LA, or Chicago are all okay. coming to watch. The betting and gambling is like, <laughs> like they're betting sheep. They're literally betting sheep. Oh, yeah. this, right? So he is doing all of this and he also introduces new practice where a bunch of ex-champion boxers yes. are ringside and Rico makes a practice of introducing them. So is like, this his, so did he introduce it, that idea? He, this is where the idea is. So at any boxing match, if there's a former world heavyweight champion or any champion in the crowd, they'll say, ladies and gentlemen, we'd like to acknowledge, you know, yeah. Tyson Fury. That started with Ricard. Ricard came up with Unbelievable. that. And this is the first boxing match that ever happens at. So the fight starts and it's on September 3rd, 1906 and but it's at three o'clock in the afternoon and the temperature had risen. It's outdoors. The temperature had risen to 100 degrees Fahrenheit or 38 degrees Celsius. Oh, that's hot. Tens of thousands of people here. In the stadium. Yeah, in the stadium. Ricard decides early on this is aimed at people who can spend a lot of money for the seats. Sure. The seats are expensive, yeah. but, you know, but people come because they want to gamble. Um, so it's 38 degrees in the Nevada sun in the desert. And you've got to remember this is when there are no rounds go till someone can't fight anymore. Is this still the still way? Still that, right? Yeah. they got gloves and it's Queen sure. of Marquis rules. And you can't and use weapons. That. That's yeah, gone. that's gone. So the fight starts. It goes for 42 gruelling rounds. Oh, wow. In the 33rd round, Gans breaks his hand but still fights using one hand. Nelson gets frustrated in the 42nd round and hits Gans with a low blow and is disqualified and Gans wins. And amazingly, the crowd, given this is an African-American sure. being a white guy, are very well behaved. And it becomes known as the great fight of the century and exceeds all expectations. The fight's amazing. Now, the fight is filmed. Yep. You can watch footage of this. Really? Yeah, on YouTube. What year are we? It is 1906. Yeah. And is then sent to all the cinemas around the country. So everyone further sees promotion this. Further promotion for the town. And, the, and Ricard gets cut of that those film receipts, right? This makes tech record and the sport into a new era. Suddenly boxing yeah. is not just like in back alleys and yeah. shape. It's like celebrity, yeah. big event. Mainstream. He makes a lot of money from doing it, right? This at the time this is finished, he is suddenly a new man. Once again, Ricard has problems because in 1907 a bust comes through and he loses almost all his money. What's he losing on? 
He has a lot of money invested in mining stocks and shares and right. suddenly the, it, it's a bust. He's still got the saloon but he loses a lot of money. He manages to keep a bit of money. In addition to all of this, his five-year-old daughter Bessie becomes ill with tonsillitis and is taken to New York to get operated on and, and dies with Rickard next to her. Tonsillitis? What's going on in this? T- this Rick, is unbelievable. Rickard never forgives the Don't doctor. Don't get sick. Yeah. Don't get sick. Rickard never forgives the doctor. Yeah. He's furious about it. So he's got a lot of tragedy. He moves around a bit because he's just so frustrated. He sets up a new northern in a town called Eli, Nevada. Mm-hmm. It burns down. A few years there where he's like losing his yes. mind. He then finds near 60 miles from Goldfield, a place called Pioneer City, they find rich iron ores, which he owns a lease on it, and it becomes worth a fortune. He's suddenly shipping 100 tons of days of ore at $100 per tonne, and suddenly he's got the money. And as this is happening and he's recovering from the financially and a little bit from the tragedy, the biggest fight probably in the history of boxing up until this point after he's already done one, the heavyweight championship of the world yes. suddenly falls into his lap. Wow. Who I mean, and who? There's a white champion named James Jeffries versus yes. a boxer that some people might know the name of if you know boxing at all, a guy called Jack Johnson, the Here greatest African-American boxer, some would say, of all time. Of all time. And suddenly Rickard finds himself up to the most racially charged, biggest boxing match of the century. He's right in it. We might finish there and okay. come back. Wow. Thank you very much, Tyson O'Reilly. And ladies and gentlemen, now we have a short outtake from our bonus episode we do every week from the Bazaar Plus membership program. Now, I've got a great one that's been written into us, which I just thought I had to read to you because I think you're going to really appreciate sure. it. Sure. It's from Jake Yoss. He said, hilarious podcast, guys. Love it. You two are great together. Mm. Like an old couple that have rejuvenated their love life with some new sex toys, erotic stories. I love it. Helps me get through my work day. Okay. I'm going <laughs> to stop you there. That's How has he seen through my, our process? <laughs> who's this guy? It says, Can you cancel someone's membership? Is he, is he a member? That's unbelievable. What's he up to? Well, it's, He's just ruined it. Have we got our spark back? It's amazing. Like the odd couple. Yeah. Like now, Cagney and Lacey. <laughs> you and I are exactly so, like Cagney. Starsky and Hutch. Stay, stay tuned for our up-to-date pop culture references. Yeah. <laughs> like Milo and Otis. <laughs> like Freebie and the Bean. The Captain and Tennille. <laughs> Lenny and Squiggy. Simon and Garfunkel. All right, I'm done, I'm done. That's a short clip from our bonus episode each week for members who join our Bazaar Plus program. If you're interested in signing up to that and hearing more of it, simply go to the link in the show notes or go to bazaarplus.com.